Like many of you, I've ridden my bike more and more during the pandemic as gyms were closed. Like many of you, my time spent on YouTube has also ramped up during the pandemic, and it was in the early stages of lockdown I came across Francis Cade's channel. Think of it somewhat like an automotive enthusiast channel, but for cycling. And today's guest has been featured countless times in Francis's videos. James Thomas is the co-owner of Bicycle Limited, a boutique bike shop with a long history of being in the neighborhood, but it wasn't until recently he was asked to join as the captain of the ship, leading a charge in the complex process of bike fitting. If you're a cyclist, getting the right fit is essential, and James subscribes to the philosophy of fit first, buy later when it comes to new bike purchases, and I'm here for it. Francis has graciously hosted James, whose expertise and knowledge can be seen and learned worldwide thanks to the internet. I was further drawn to James as I kept noticing his watches in the videos. He and I sat down for this conversation over Zoom to get a closer look into the growth of his career, the importance of feeling valued, and certainly the evolution of bicycle. As a former dive instructor, James has a tool watch proclivity and quite a bit of exposure to some extremely nice cars throughout his life, so I definitely recommend you stick around. I guess you could say he's one of us. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. So first of all, James, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show. Um, I've been following Francis Cade's YouTube channel, which is how I came across you and your business, which incidentally, you're from the UK, but I'm curious, which, like, what area are you specifically from? I'm, I'm London born, born and bred. I, I grew up in sort of Southwest London, but then sort of in my, in my late teens, early twenties, basically Spent well, spent a few years traveling the world as as a diving instructor, scuba diving instructor. Oh wow! And that's that's hence hence the sort of strange accent uh, that that tends to come about. Um, so yeah, I lived in the states for a little bit actually. Lived in, in Fort Lauderdale and uh, really enjoyed that. And just but but kind of got up, got fed up of the kind of nomadic lifestyle of a, of a dive instructor and came straight back to the, to the bike industry and haven't really left since. Interesting. So when you were in Fort Lauderdale, were you where were you diving most? Were you out in the Keys or were you going down in the Bahamas or what? No, straight off the coast of Fort Lauderdale. It's got some oh. fantastic, amazing diving. Like quite quite deep technical stuff, but a lot of, a lot of wrecks or wreck penetration, that kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, it was, it was an amazing, it was an amazing time in my life. Great to be uh, great to be doing it as a young man, but uh, but it, it is a young man's game. Sure, sure. So what got you into diving in the first place? Uh, I had always had an obsession with the ocean from a young age. Uh, I think when all the other kids wanted to be firemen and policemen, I think I wanted to be a marine biologist. Unfortunately, I wasn't smart enough. <laughs> so, or, or I actually know probably more, more to do with the fact that I was just too lazy at school. And uh, so, so, yeah, I got, got a real interest in, in marine life. And that was the, an opportunity presented itself, and I ended up, you know, learning to learning to be a, be an instructor and living in you know Fort Lauderdale, Miami. Uh, did a little bit of the Keys, and ultimately Australia as well. Bit in the Caribbean. Oh, wow. Incredible. Yeah, it's good. I, I was I was very lucky. I had a, I had some I had some great experiences, which I, I had some in fact rather amazing, rather incredible experiences, um, which were all completely overshadowed by by uh, by our trip that began in San Diego, your, your hometown. Right. 
although having done some really cool stuff, they're, they're, none of it really compares to, in terms of its significance to me, to the to the trips that you you possibly know know me for. Yeah. So yeah, I, I yeah I had an interesting an interesting life, but my first your younger life, my my first job ever though was was in a, in a bike shop, which funnily enough. I went into this morning to buy some cliff shop blocks for my missus for when she goes into labor. The same <laughs> manager is there. The same guy that hired me is there. No way. I, I can't, he, I've been in there a couple of times, but because of COVID, I, I had a mask on and rather embarrassing, I didn't have a mask on today. And I always feel bad about having a mask. I didn't have one on me. And um, I kind of walked in. He sort of gave me this kind of look. All right, all right. Uh, and I was like, I know exactly who you are. You were a dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was all right. He was actually a bit of a mentor, but he was quite hard on me. But it was just strange that, you know, this guy's there literally 20 years later. Right. Uh, working in this little shop. And uh, I have my own. He's working for someone else and I have my own. Yeah. Well, do you, do you think he was hard on you because he saw your potential? No, I didn't. It was, it was yeah. twenty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you know, I was I was seventeen year old kid who was more interested in you know girls and cigarettes and you know riding my bike and and being badly behaved than than anything else. And work was just a means of you know mechanizing that. If you see what I mean? So yeah. So yeah, I uh, I, I don't know. I, don't, I probably didn't really care at the time as well. I was a bit of a little shit back then. So yeah, changed. Oh, it's all good. I uh, my first job was in a bike shop as well. What were you guys carrying? What brands? Back then, we were carrying Specialized. Um, oh man, I you know what? I, I really got. I, I think probably Specialized Treks. Actually, I think a lot of Ridgebacks, which is a British brand that you might not be familiar with. Um, but they were. It was mostly really, really basic stuff. I mean. Like kind of going way back when I, I first started, when most of my friends as, as a, at a very young age had paper rounds. I had a, um, a, a shop building universal mountain bikes, like cheap hundred dollar mountain bikes. Yeah. In, in a workshop, like at the end of a bike shop, in, the, in a bike shop at the end of my road. So this is when I was like 13, 14. So literally, I can say I've been in the bike industry for uh, the best part of like, you know, 24 years. So, um, Yes, it's 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 crazy, but uh, I can't remember what, what where I was going with that now. Well, I just asked you about the assortment, really. Yeah, ultimately, I just yeah, I kind of scaled the scaled the bike industry and um, ended up where I am now. Sweet. What did your parents do while you were growing up? My mother was a personal trainer and was a complete Nazi when it came to eating and doing exercise. And, you know, Lou and I, my partner and I were always talking about how we want our kids to be really active. She's very active as well. Um, and was, you know, a very good uh, influence on me from a, from a health perspective. <laughs> Unfortunately, rather in a contradictory fashion, I ended up as a smoker. But right. I, kicked that, I kicked that about 10 years ago. Um, well, I think that's like, that's like a default setting in the UK, though, right? At some point, well, it was, it was. I don't, I, mean, I don't know how old you are, but I mean, I, I was when, I, when, when I was in my twenties, everybody smoked. And yeah. growing up in the sort of in the nineties and early thousands, um, you know, in in film and you know, uh, TV shows, everyone, you know, the cool guy always smoked, the good guy always smoked. It was a cool thing. Of course. Whereas now it's 
you know, I, I have younger siblings who are in their sort of uh, late teens and they think smoking is completely disgusting. You look a bit stupid, you know, right, um, right. doing it. So uh, that, that whole, it, it's great that that whole attitude has completely changed. Sure. But, but yeah. Um, and, and my father, so my parents divorced when I was five. Uh, my father is, uh, is in, in property, basically. He's a, he's a land trader. Got it. None of them, none of them really um, inspired me to, or encouraged me to get into the industry that I'm in, because frankly, until quite recently, I didn't really make much of a, you know, success of myself. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's the bike industry is notoriously hard, it's notoriously underpaid. Uh, and this is something that I'm, you know, sorry if I'm kind of moving around all over the place here. No, that's what these things are all about. <laughs> I'm, I'm really trying to change with bicycle. And one of the one of the things that we pride ourselves is we pay our staff better than they can get paid in any other bike shop. Um, you know, or most of my guys get paid more than I ever did in in a bike shop, uh, and and that's something that's that's really important to me. And I think that the the the, um, the professionalism of bike shops starts with the staff and starts with how well they're looked after, how well they're paid, how well they're appreciated, and all this kind of stuff. So again, yeah. forgive going off on a bit of a tangent here but it, it but it is, it is something that's quite close to my heart um because i feel like i was undervalued underpaid for for a lot of the work that i did for pretty much every single retailer and you know i've worked for dozens of bike shops um bit of an industry hall and uh you know i i'm i'm really adamant that i don't want any of my staff to feel any any kind of uh any glimmer of that how many staff members are there we are um, we're, we're we're five at the moment six. sure yeah five or six i can't even remember um well i've got, I've got three fitters a mechanic and a manager so there's five cool and there's three fitters including me uh one of them one i've recently very very recently brought on who is a new guy straight out of the, he, he doesn't, he hasn't really come from the bike industry. He's, um, he's actually comes from the, uh, from the music industry. Mm. Uh, I, I actually now, we're, we're now starting to employ people from other industries rather than from employing within the bike industry. Uh, because I, I tend to find having made this mistake already, I find individuals from the bike industry, particularly from the bike fitting side of things tend to possess bad habits uh or or at least possess traits that aren't necessarily conducive to how we operate uh so we look for uh people who uh have have a good um have a good attitude i guess and 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 sure. i think we're going to work well as a team which is i guess any employer would say but um you know kind of moving on to my my first fitter my first the first guy i employed is an ex an ex pro uh, who used to race at a very high level. He used to race pro, pro conti level, and he he's my number one guy. Is just does everything incredibly well. I mean, you know, within within a few months of him working for me, I could walk into a fit, and he would have done it. I, I, you know, I'd look at it. I'd look at the you know, look at the starting position, look at the finishing position. I go, well, there's nothing I need to do here. Uh, with my most recent guy, it's been a little bit more difficult for me to. Um, be hands off, but I've sort of I've done that now. I've, I've kind of let him let him just single swim, 
see how he gets on. And actually, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased to um, report that he's he's doing really, really well. He's doing possess, uh, um, he's getting some really great results out of the studio. And that's Andy. Uh, that's that that's that's Lee, who's our who's our newest addition. Andy Andy Fenn is uh, I don't know how much you know about our business, but Andy Fenn is 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 our original fitter. He's one of our original fitters, and he is. Probably one of two, three people in the country that I would let touch my bike position. He's mm. he's an incredible bike fitter, and is the second busiest bike fitter in the country. Yeah, yeah, behind you, I'm sure. So there's there's a few things there. Um, one, the pay scale and the appreciation factor. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it it just instills such confidence and and you know the 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 will to get out of bed in the morning, right? To go to your job when you feel those things. The other thing I love about your business is, and you've you've talked about this before, just not on this podcast, but you know you wear an Oxford shirt and you know chino pants and things like that, and you present yourself in a different way, far more serious business because you take it seriously. And you know you go to a car dealership that's selling Porsches, and those guys aren't dressed in jeans and t-shirts, right? Like they're they're presentable. And I, I love that you've taken that approach given because, you know, bike industry nowadays, I mean, you're spending thousands of dollars on a bike. So it's not even just product, but it is a service through and through. Yeah, and it's tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, yeah. I, I used to work for a, a very large retailer locally in southwest London. And, you know, as bike shops go, it's the best bike shop in the world, hands down. Best bike shop I've ever been to. But there was something that didn't really sit well with me with taking 10, 15, 20,000 pounds from uh, from a consumer and then them having the same experience as the guy buying five dollar energy right right and this is something that i have my father's thing for in that he always instilled in me you know it, people judge you on your appearance people judge you how, on how you talk and that's just a simple fact that's a fact of life and i think that when when we elevate the way that we present ourselves we elevate our customers expectations but also their experience uh, you know, I, I like watches. I think we've discussed it. We both like watches. You know, when you go and buy a watch uh, at an AD, you don't get greeted by, you know, a guy in jeans and a T-shirt. You get yeah. a guy who smells like, it smells good, doesn't smell like teen spirit. You know, he's, he's wearing a suit. He's wearing, you know, it's it's kind of, I'm, I'm going, I'm trying to get to that kind of level, really. It's it, Think Savile Row Taylor rather than, you know, Hugo Boss, you know, off the rack suits. Is the right. other analogy that I like to use is sort of tailor-made or custom-made suits. Um, excuse me, because that's you know that's, that's kind of what we do. We do we, we customize bikes. We make custom bikes for people. Sure. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your time at Sigma Sport, which is I'm assuming the the shop you're referring to. What were some of the major takeaways you took from that experience, and how long were you there exactly? I think I was there three or four years. Um, I think. The, the thing with Sigma Sport is it's run by two incredibly dedicated and committed guys cool. who are and have the um, the very rare in the bike industry understanding of bicycles and, and the bike industry as a whole, but also an understanding of business. And, and I think that's uncommon. I don't know what it's like in the US, but certainly in the UK, you either have someone who loves bikes and has, and isn't business savvy, doesn't have the understanding of, of how, you know, how to work, how to profit model and all this kind of stuff. I've worked for these people 
I've also, on the flip side of that, worked for the accountants, the guys who don't really understand the bike industry. They understand profit margin. They understand running a business. But there ain't no point in having a great profit margin if you have to shag it at the end of the season in order to get rid of all the product that you bought really cheap. Sure. So that's that. And, and I think the, the owners of Sigma Sport, Ian and Jason, were, you know, two individuals, particularly Ian, who were very good at combining both of those elements. And, you know, hats off to them. I mean, they 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 have built a business that is, they, they deserve all the success that they get. But it's not it's not the business that I want. It's not because, you know, it's all it, it's become this this machine of, it, you know, it, it, it when you when you create a monster, you've got to feed it. Yeah. And you've got to feed it by any means necessary. And when it's that big, the, the quality starts to slip. And it always does. It's inevitable. And I'm not saying they do a bad job because they do an amazing job. Better than any other big bike shop. Way better. But it's a big bike shop. <laughs> Above and beyond. But not the same as my shop. And right. It's not the same and it's never going to be the same. But if you're, if you're spending... Uh, you're spending hundred thousand pounds on a car. You don't go to your local little shop around the corner. Or I, I'm trying to think of an analogy here. You go to specialists at the end right. of the day, but for certain things, you know, you, if you want to buy a custom bike, I'm the person you come and see. We're going to sit down. We're going to talk to you about it. We're going to you know, you sit there over over. Actually, you know, even even buying a pair of shoes, there's a huge amount of onus that is put on. Um, you know, getting a pair of shoes that's right with us. So. Uh, I think if you're, if, you know, if you're looking for, you know, they, they are they're a kind of mass market model, whereas we are trying to be very much more specific. Uh, you're only, you know, you can't walk into my shop without a, an appointment, so you have to you have to book an appointment in order to come in. Right, right. Um, but, the, but to answer your question, the main, you know, the main takeaways were, that, you know, talk, taught me a lot about business, taught me a lot about, you know, what works, and also general attitudes of, of big business. Uh, but it also Frankly, it taught me what I really didn't want. Mm. Which is that is this this you know stack it high, watch it fly approach of move you know constantly having to move boxes. And you know you you've probably seen video of, of my store. There is very little stock in there. Um, I mean, apart from the stock that's kind of squirreled away because I mean we've got eight hundred pairs of shoes on site. I was going to say, apart from the mind. shoes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> just Jesus, shoes, man, sir. So, is a is a constant bugbear of mine because I, I I we've got I got I got piles of shoes in my office I've got piles of shoes above the office they're gonna start they're gonna start making their way into my loft in the house soon I suspect uh, so you know we, we've got crazy amounts of shoes but a lot of that is because of COVID anyway because of the uh, the, the difficulties we're having with, with with getting stock into the country and and out of out of forest. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I'm very grateful for what I for my time I have at Sigma. Um, I wish them all the best. Uh, there's no there's zero animosity between me and them. I still I'm still I'm still friendly with them. Uh, sure. So so yeah, that's cool. Um, well, they they're a partnership. So, did you think the business acumen came from one, and the other one's more the bike guy, or do they both share both? Uh, I suspect so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, so that's the reason I'm asking. So, I mean, a lot of businesses run that way where like, especially in fashion, for example, like you've got the creative, then you got the business head that is like, you know, the partner. Um, so how are you handling that? How are you handling the business part? Because you as a bike fitter are incredible. Well, something, something that you, you won't know because we don't make it hugely public is that um, I do have business part. So 
the story goes uh, with bicycle. The story goes that I used to work. I worked there back in 2006. And uh, when I joined them, it was a typical little family bike shop. It it had kids' bikes, micro scooters in the window. Uh, There were three road bikes in stock. Um, I even remember what they were. Um, A CAD 9 and two synapses from Canada. And, and the, you know, the, 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 the typical Saturday was you, you'd sell 15, 20 bikes and they'd all be 300 pounds and, and that'd be it. Anyway, by the time I left this business, um, after much uh, toing and froing with my then boss, now partner, it was exclusively a road bike shop, you know, that, because that's what I was interested in. That's what I saw, I, I think I thought would be the way to go. I could kind of see it going that way. Um, the interest in road cycling in the UK started in around 2007, when the prologue started off on the tour, uh, started off in London, and then we had 2012, and then we've had COVID and all the other stuff. Anyway, um, so I left and went on to work for multiple other businesses, and I, for a few reasons that I won't get into, um, ended up back and buying into this business. So I, I'm my own half of it, not the the other half is owned by my partner, who basically takes care of, of all of the all the financials, pays, helps pay the staff, looks at, looks after the accounts, all that kind of stuff. He's really, really good at, with that sort of stuff. I'm right. not terrible at it, but I'm not great at it. Um, he's great at it, but he's not great with people. So, and he wouldn't mind me saying this anyway. Uh, yeah, he, he's great with me, but he's just a little bit, you know. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, we are we, we're a great team in that respect. Uh, mm. And we, we learn from one another. We're good sounding boards for one another. Uh, you know, when wherever we're talking about staff or the direction of the business, there's usually quite a lot of different um, approaches made on, on coming to a conclusion, coming to a, 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 a successful conclusion. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And, and actually, there, there were, in the early days of my takeover at Bicycle, there were times where I kind of, questioned uh, you know should i have should i have gone and done this myself and you know should i have um you know just set up a, a bike fit studio and looking at some of my competitors nah <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't have anywhere near the time or the energy that i do to be able to do a good job if i was doing this all on my own and i i, I pity the people that are doing it not pity but I, I i feel sorry for i feel for the guys who are doing it on their own um so so yeah I'm, I'm eternally grateful for my partner james for listening uh, he's also a james so we should call it we should call it james and james cycles or something yeah something really imaginative yeah like j2 bicycle. yeah <laughs> yeah like bicycle like exactly bicycle. well i mean i guess the good news too though is it was already an established footprint right or did you guys take a a, a new space no it was exactly it's always been there it was it was in the same place as when i left it um, albeit in a slightly different shape and form, but for for the most part, um, the the I mean, the, certainly the the website, the, the phone number, all of that kind of stuff, that's always been there. It's always there's always been a bicycle shop there, uh, although there isn't really a bicycle shop there anymore. It's really it really is more. Uh, I mean, I like to think of it as a as a bike fitting specialist with you know a small. I mean, I over the last three years we've we significantly reduced the amount of shop floor space. You know, when I took it over, I think there were 20, 30 bikes on display. Now I think you can count on one hand how many, how many bikes there are on display when you walk in. Uh, I think you can only see four actually. Well, I think that's, 
I think that's probably a testament to the adage you use often, which is fit first by second, you know, or by let by later. Whatever, by later whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So where a, where did you learn that? And where did you learn to fit to begin with? So my fitting, uh, journey started back in, uh, 2011. And I wound up working with, um, Phil Cavill and Julian Wall in Cycle Fit in Covent Garden, who are accredited with, rightly so, with being the the forerunners in in bringing bike fit to the masses. You know, these mm-hmm. these were the two guys that um, learned from very early uh, at a very early stage, and um, really just built a reputation, incredible reputation, and you know, and rightly so, and have also. Uh, you know, ended up fitting most, a lot of, a lot of the proteins, big, a lot of pros go there. Uh, and I sort of fell in love with it from there. And mm. uh, it sort of took me to, it, it ended up taking me to Singapore and then, and now here. Uh, but I never really stopped learning. And I think this is, this is the thing with bike fitting is that there's, there's a lot of bike fitting out there that, you know, don't get me wrong. This isn't about self-elevation. It's just to give you, you and hopefully your viewers a bit of an insight as to how bike fitting typically works. And certainly in my experience and what I've witnessed, um, there are a lot of fitters out there that go on one course and that's it. And they, you know, they can go and do two, three, 4,000 bike fits or using one, um method one idea one concept or way of positioning somebody on a bicycle and frankly you know bike fitting is is not that simple it's complex and i, I say this to my staff i say this to particularly one you guys it's, you know what you're learning to do here is not simple it's not it, it's extremely complex and the the answer to the question is the answer to so many questions is probably possibly maybe don't know, right. because you you, know, you you just don't know what happened to try. Um, so I basically went on pretty much every course uh, that I could find, and I, I ended up working for working with or being um, trained by uh, a, 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 a now very good friend of mine called Tony Cork, who taught me a very different attitude to, towards bike fitting, which was basically to look at the human being. Don't look at the don't look at the numbers. Don't look at the motion capture system or the the video analysis or the pressure mapping, look at the human being and get some information out of them and talk to them. And, and you know, some of the skills that I learned from him and actually it was really just the attitude that, that I learned that I, I, I would credit him with the most of, of just talk to people. You're not talking, you're not, you're not treating a piece of meat on a jig. You're talking to a human being, you're dealing with a human being. And I think this is the, one of the biggest fundamental problems with a lot of the motion capture stuff and a lot of the tech in, in bike fitting is that it is, it's very labor intensive. And when you have a system or, or a, a piece of tooling that is labor intensive, it detracts attention away from the needs of the individual or of the client. And um, bike fitting uh, businesses have been very good at marketing themselves or as you know, this is very accurate and it's very precise and but bike fitting isn't precise. It's not accurate. It's it's like you know, it, it's a game of inches, not millimeters. Right. There's anybody who says says otherwise, I don't believe. <laughs> right. I think people just like to get granular. I mean, you, we'll talk about watches later, but it's kind of similar in that industry too, where it's like oh, well, this A is slightly flatter across the top. So this means this watch is more rare. And like, 
you know, I mean, you could take it to the nth degree, obviously. I'm curious, what did you study? Did you go to university? No. Oh, okay. And uh, I, uh, I, I, why do you ask? Well, I'm just kind of curious what kind of subjects you may have gravitated to. To be honest, I... Which could have been in, you know, primary school or wherever as well. Part of, the, part of my mentality um, is that I'm not really interested in something. Or sorry, I, I struggle to learn about something unless I'm interested in it. Sure. And, and apply it. And so, for example, biology, when I was at school, I was terrible at it. I completely <laughs> flunked it. Whereas now, you know, I, 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 people ask me if I have a physiotherapy degree, but it's not because I'm interested in anatomy or physiology. It's because I have a means of applying it and it helped me better at my job. So, and it also kind of makes me sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, but, but no, it, it certainly helps. But bike fitting is a, it's a mix. It's a mix of, of, of uh, anatomical understanding and, and um, uh, biological understanding, but it's also uh, extremely important to um, to understand product. I mean, this is where you know there are a lot of this is where this is where physiotherapy bike fitting really falls flat in its face is a lack of understanding on product. Uh, right. You know, a shoe that isn't that doesn't work is never going to work, and not necessarily understanding whether it's going to work or not. And I think that's where we differ in that we understand, you know, we look beyond uh, what, the, what the customer has with them product wise. Right. And, you know, don't get me wrong. This is, it isn't about selling people. I don't care. I couldn't care less. And I've said this to my guys and I, I instill it in them, whether somebody pays nothing in a bike fit or whether they pay 5,000 pounds, both happen very, very frequently. But if somebody comes in, and they've got a pair of shoes that are three sizes too big, and that's causing their knee pain. Trust me, viewers, it can happen. Um, listeners. Then I'm going to tell that customer, and I'm going to try and fit them with a shoe that's going to be perfect for them, and I'm going to solve their problems. If I don't do that, guess what? You don't solve their problems, and they come back. Or they blame you that you don't know what you're talking about or whatever, yeah. And so and, and our the way that we work is that if you continue having problems after being treated by us, you come back for free. Now, there is there there are terms and conditions in, in that statement. You have to be right in the position that we put you in. Right. If you turn up with a bike that's three sizes too big for you, ain't my problem, and right. it's not my fault. I'm here to you know give you the information to arm you with some information to be more informed about purchasing decisions. Be you know if you have then this is why I have this fit first buy later mm. ethos because. Um. Bike shop staff get it wrong. Consumers get it wrong. Bike manufacturers are getting it wrong. And, you know, bike manufacturers are still saying people my height should be riding a 56. On no planet, I'm 5'10". On no planet in this solar system can I ride a 56-centimeter bike. Just cannot happen. I mean, it can actually because I'm a bit like a sausage dog. I've got a long back and short legs, so I can ride anything to a certain extent with a reasonable degree of comfort. I've also been riding for over 25 years with a reasonable degree of regularity. So I've got more fitness than underlying fitness than most people who are taking up the sport. Right. But ultimately, you know, the, the, the sizing structure in, in, in cycling is completely out. And I, my, my theory surrounding it is that it all comes down to saddle height. Now, yeah. 
if you watch the videos with Francis Cade, you know I've got a beer in my bonnet about saddle height. But if you consider that the average saddle height reduction that I make on most customers is probably about two centimeters, that's a bike size. Right, right. Uh, so, and so this is it. So most people, and, and if you think about the, how can I put this without getting sued? <laughs> most of the most of the most common, some of the most common um, bike fit uh, methods are backed by some of the largest bike manufacturers. Okay, and there is a correlation between certain bike fit methodology and excessive saddle height. So if you consider that a particular bike manufacturer uses data collated from a certain bike fit system to design new products and come up with geometry table. Are you familiar with the expression shit in, shit out? Uh, yes. <laughs> if, you have, if you start with bad information in the first place, you're going to get a bad outcome. Um, so, and I, I think, and this is something that I, I, I have witnessed firsthand with this particular, in, uh, this particular manufacturer. Um, so, uh, I, so yeah, I, I think that a lot of a lot of manufacturers are certainly claiming that that bike sizes are that an optimal bike size is probably a lot bigger than I, I would say. It's certainly in my experience, I would say it, it should be. Right. So yeah. Yeah, you know, I'd almost equate it. So I used to work for Allen Edmonds. Are you familiar with the shoe brand, Allen Edmonds? They're like, no. a, they're not quite John Lobb, but they're like, I don't know, $400 shoes. So they're not cheap. But basically, I used to fit people for shoes all the time because we had we had widths, like varying widths, like six different, eight different widths. So like we could really dial in your foot size, you know what I mean? Or your shoe, your shoe size. Uh, yeah, quite incredible. But the problem is, is people get hung up on size, right? You know, and so like, so this is where I'll ask the following question, you know, to kind of piggyback on what you're saying is, I wonder if people searching for bikes, it's almost like searching for a shoe size. It's like, oh no, I've always been an 11. I'm not a nine and a half triple E, you know what I mean? Like, and, and it's constant in the shoe game. So I'm sure it's the same in the bikes. Cycling shoes are even worse. Yeah, but yeah, but I, I completely agree. I, I think the the shoe thing's really interesting. I, I'm, 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 that that's amazing. Actually, you had eight different sizes of shoe, um, but the but shoes certainly in cycling. And again, forgive me for going off on another tangent, but you know the amount of people that get the wrong shoes coming in. Now I, I've got this big, I got a big love for Lake, the Lake brand of, of shoes. Um, but mostly because they fit and they have lots of different ranges, lots of different ranges of, of fit and size. But I still get guys who come in and, oh, you know, I, I bought these shoes because I saw you on the channel. And yeah, yeah. And the shoes are like four sizes too big for them. You know, I bought them up the road. And I'm just like, just because it's got a, just because the shoe is good. So the shoe is only as good as how well it fits. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's, that. it's amazing how, uh, I think actually with, with um, with cycling shoes in particular, uh, exactly to your point, a lot of people will walk in and go, oh, you know, I'll, I'll take a shoe off the shelf and go, oh, I want this in a size ten, but not ten. They're an eight with wide feet, eight triple E, and you know, cycling shoes for the most part aren't aren't built for that type of foot. Right. They're 
they're not built for any type of foot actually for a lot for the most part a lot of a lot of shoe brands you kind of look at the shoe and you kind of think are you going to put a human foot a human appendage in there like it's doesn't it doesn't make sense if you haven't heard episode one of the standard age podcast then let me tell you about my friend tim jackson as owner of passion fine jewelry tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available i'm talking about gronfeld Habring, kudoki roger smith roman gothier sarpaneva the list goes on The staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop, and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job, and like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay. And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie accessory brand Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief, which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite, of course, a classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O. Or visit them at Contonement.co. And use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get back to the show. What was your first bike? My first proper bike, and, and I, my, I, I credit my father with uh, getting me in the bike industry, which he'll, he'll, he'll hate, um, because he bought me my first proper mountain bike, which was a, a Marin Bobcat Trail. Cool. Circa... 1999, 1998, something like that. No, earlier, 97, something like that. Anyway, um, like I need me, I need me in frame, and it had like an RST suspension fork, and it was like you know my pride and joy. And it, it, eventually, the RSTs got swapped out for a pair of Mazokis, and you know, ended up having a pair of disc brakes on it. And you know, well, it's, I think the fr- by that point the frame had changed. Uh, I've had a lot of bikes over the years, uh, so so yeah. But I started off in, in mountain bike. Yeah. In about 2002, 2003, turned to the dark side and started shaving my legs and wearing Lycra and, um, you know, started riding around like my hair's on fire. And, and that was kind of the end for me. And actually, it, it wasn't until very, very recently uh, that I've, I've come back to mountain biking uh, with a real, a real hunger. And actually, I've, I've kind of rediscovered what elation feels like. Absolutely. I got a trail center half an hour up the road for me and just absolutely love it i just got back into uh mountain biking as well so i so i'm a little older than you are i'm 42 so my first job in a bike shop was in 1995 and had a trek 820 then a uh 7000 which was aluminum frame rock shocks quadra 21 i think uh up front uh maybe it was a quadra 10 i can't remember but i didn't really fancy myself a racer but i did some races you know what i mean so 
uh, mostly cross country, was off the bike, on the bike, off the bike, on the bike. And then it's been about the better part of 10 years since I've been on a mountain bike. And I just got one again this year. So I'm I'm like super stoked to be back on the mountain bike. Yeah, it's crazy having ridden road primarily for the last 10 years. So good now. Oh, my God. They're like monster trucks. They just go over everything. <laughs> it's but, but in the air, it's so much harder because the thing's so big. You know, right. I because I, I, I used to I used to ride downhill dirt jump trials, and you know, now this thing is just it's, it's huge. Yeah. So it, it takes a lot of getting used to to try and get the thing stable in the air again. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because, like, I am still like I've only ridden it a few times because it's still new. The 800 millimeter wide <laughs> handlebars. Like, I'm just like, what? I feel like a gorilla. Like, yeah. I'm like, these things need to be 750 max. <laughs> what do you go for? I have a Fuel EX 9.8. Nice, nice. I, I did it actually through Project One. So I painted it to look like a Santa Cruz high tower. Pimped it. <laughs> oh, it's sick. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm spoiled rotten. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. You have the Yeti, right? I got yeah, I got an SB140. I looked at that bike. Yeah, how do you like it? Oh, it's amazing. Cool. I go out mountain biking with Fran, and his bike just doesn't stand a chance. I mean, he's basically got a road bike with a suspension fork. Right. <laughs> it's got road bike angles. It's got like a seventy-three degree head and seat angle, so it looks like a road bike. Whereas my bike is built for fun. Uh, so, so yeah, it was the, it was the, it was the shortest travel 650B bike I could find. Right. Um, cause I was Adam and I didn't want 29 inch wheels. Sure. Well, that's the thing is I, this is the first 29er I've ever owned. And like that, hence my monster truck comment. I mean, the thing just slays anything. It's just insane. They're a lot better now than they used to be hmm. 29, aren't they? I mean, I haven't, I haven't really ridden many modern 29ers, but um, I, I still had this kind of thing in my head, bigger wheels, weaker wheels. Uh, I, I kind uh, of, I want to, I want to be able to hut the thing a bit and rip it up. So I, uh, yeah, I went for a small wheel. Yeah. But yeah, I really found it incredibly capable, capable more capable yeah. than down, downhill bikes of old, uh, which was incredible. It was amazing. Um, but, but you know, this, this is what happens when you, when you have expensive mountain bikes. Right, right. No, exactly. Um, well, we've mentioned Francis Cade a couple times, so shout out Francis. Um, I haven't met him, obviously, uh, as I'm meeting you today for the first time. Um, you guys do something called Bike Fit Tuesdays, which are some of my favorite segments, actually, because not only are they informative, but you guys definitely have just like a great way of keeping it light. And even just like the tongue in cheek approach of not releasing them on Tuesdays. <laughs> uh, what, uh, how did you guys meet? So I, I was working at Sigma at the time and um, we, there was one of the marketing guys had reached out to Francis to try and use him as a means of promoting the bike fit mm. department, which was still, I think I was a year or two in, so it was still kind of at a fledgling stage. And Francis came in and I did a fit for his then girlfriend. And he and I hit it off, we got on really, really well. Uh, this is 2016, 2017 maybe. And uh, he and I hit it off, he came back for a fit a couple of weeks later. And then, you know, a, a ride was suggested as these things often are when, you, when you're in, in bike shops. And um, like, to be honest, 
you know, the the the, the, the initial bike video that we did did really really well and was surprisingly so. Neither of us really expected it to do, you know, particularly well. I think now it's reached over a hundred thousand views. It might be more. Um, and my regular day off was a Monday, so the 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 regular occurrence was and this was pretty much every week for a good a good part of time was that my monday we'd go for a bike ride in the morning yeah. we'd film um a you know bike fit segment which we figured oh well it's going to get launched on tuesday so we'll call it bike fit tuesdays bike for tuesdays bike fit tu-. we didn't really know and so we, we'd go and do the ride. We film it. In, if you look, if you look at the earlier stuff, it's usually us in a cafe having a conversation about stuff. Yeah. And um, and yeah, we called it Bike for Tuesdays, and it got it, so we, we'd film it on the Monday. It would get edited that evening, and then it would get launched on the Tuesday. And for 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 a long time, for probably the best best part of the year, eighteen months, it was always it was exclusively on Tuesday. Now. <laughs> Any day you like, name a day, name a yeah. day as long as it's not Tuesday. We'll put a bike video out. Right. That's that's how it that's how it started, and you know it's 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 crazy. It's, it's, but thank you to all the viewers. But thank you to everyone who's watched it. It's it's I, I I'm eternally humbled by uh, how successful it's been. Actually. Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't realize you guys had only known each other for like four years. I'd figured you just like grew up together. You guys have such a great dynamic. Yeah, that's cool. Francis and I have been through some pretty heavy shit together. <laughs> Fair. So, so that leads me to my next question, actually, because what are some of the bike packing trips you guys have been on with Lawrence as well, of course? But um, you guys have done several. Like, what? Name a couple headlines. Two, actually. I mean, there are only there are only two major tours. Oh, just Vietnam and America. Yeah. So the first one started in your your lovely hometown, and it, it basically tracked. We went San Diego to LA, which isn't a particularly big ride. We then rode from LA over um, to Vegas. We yeah, we rode <laughs> LA to Barstow to Baker to Vegas, um, and then back through Death Valley. From Death Valley, we basically tracked north up to a beautiful town, probably the most beautiful town in the world I've ever been to, called Lee Vining, which is the eastern side of Yosemite Valley rode across Yosemite Valley and then across to San Francisco and then all the way north to Portland. This is a two and a half thousand mile, one month trip that I can very safely say changed all of our lives completely, particularly mine. Um, In what way? Uh, it, 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 for me, it, it symbolizes a turning point in my life where I, uh, I quit my job about two weeks after coming back. I took on bicycle. I met my now partner and I started a uh, a route to genuine happiness. Nice. For, for many, many years, I was with, uh, I, I, I was doing jobs that it's not that I didn't enjoy them. It just wasn't really going anywhere. I was with people, but, you know, in my, in my personal life that weren't really going anywhere and didn't really work for me. And, and, you know, now I'm, I run a successful business and, and I'm very happy. Um, so what was the light switch though from that ride? There was a point, I mean, just, I, the, the, I mean, have you been to Death Valley? Have you been to Yosemite? It's absolutely breathtaking in more ways than one with Death Valley. It is the most beautiful place in the world. Yeah. Some of the most beautiful places in the world. I think that you know, we, we all thought that um, 
kind of NorCal and, and Oregon were going to be like the beautiful parts of it. And or you, even Yosemite, we thought we were going to, it was all overshadowed by the desert. Right. The best thing we've ever done. Best thing I've ever done. And, uh, you know, I think there were, there were points where it was a bit uh, <laughs> sketchy. There, there were points where we didn't really know if we were going to make it. And, you know, we kind of came together and we, we just knuckled down. We got on with it. We're, there were points where I was pushing Francis. He was pushing me. I was pushing Lawrence. Lawrence was pushing me. We were both pushing Lawrence. You, you get to, you come together with these things. Um, how did it change me? I don't really know. I think it was just, I, I think it, it, it made me realize that this is what I want to do with my life. This is, right. I, I want to go and see the world on a bike. And, um, working for other people that ain't ever going to happen again. Uh, so, so that was basically what resulted in me leaving Sigma. It was one of the, one of the main major reasons for me leaving Sigma um, to go and do the, the thing with bicycle. Um, because, uh, you know, being my own boss, I can sort of, to a certain extent, I can do what I want. But, uh, you know, it was, all, it was fundamentally all about being able to go and do these trips. So obviously a year later... We then rode from Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh uh, through the length of Vietnam, the opposite way to the way you guys did it. Uh, you know, we started in the north and went to the bottom. Uh, and, but, uh, and, and that, again, completely different. Again, certain uh, at points was erring on the side of, like, threatening. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, it was an experience and it was an adventure. And, I, you know, from a young age, I've been... I, I've had adventures and I, I, I don't intend to stop now. So yeah, I, I, go on. So I, I only because I'm not quite clear. So then after you left the U S trip, you wanted to pursue bicycle limited. Now, forgive me. Was, was that an offer on the table? Like, did your business partner reach out to you say, Hey, look, like I'm kind of done, but if you want to keep this guy afloat, like bring it on. Or did you pitch the idea? Oh, okay. Nah. Hey, so I was, I was in a motel room with Francis. We'd lost Lawrence by this point because Lawrence broke his arm, fell off his bike, broke his bike right. in San Francisco. Right. I was, it was a bit of a low point because Francis and I had to do 900 miles in a week. Right. Five days, six days. And it was a bit of a low point, a lull point because we, we were both completely screwed. We were both exhausted and yeah. we weren't talking to each other and all this stuff. Anyway, um, I remember sitting outside um, this motel room. He was doing an edit. I had a packet of marble red cigarettes, just sitting there smoking a cigarette, having a beer because I was having this sort of slight fuck it moment. Mm. And my now partner called me up and said, hey, how are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm all right. I'm kind of in the middle of something at the moment. I'm sort of in, I'm doing this, this ride across America. And he's like, wow. Um, and we, yeah, we had a conversation because he, he and I remained very good friends after I left high school many, all those years ago. And, you know, we would see each other at, at mutual friends barbecues and we would, we would even, you know, we'd go, we'd go for a couple of, we'd, we'd meet up a couple of times a year, just hang out, have a beer, talk about bike shops, that kind of stuff. Anyway. He called me up and said, you know, this this thing needs a new direction and I need you, I need you to come and help me with it. Wow. I, I didn't take much persuading. Uh, I, you know, I, I sold everything I had and, you know, put it into uh, a new jig, a pressure mapping system, uh, basically a full bike fit suite, which is not cheap. No. Um and I saw my only my only nice watch. And what was it? 
it was a Rolex Yachtmaster. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, which I don't miss. And, um, and yeah, and, we, and off we went. Uh, so, so yeah, it was, it, it, it was an offer, but it, it came, it was just good timing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this is why I say the, 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 the America trip was so pivotal for me because it was, it was probably just a, a matter of timing. It, it resulted in my missus, the shop. Well, I'm dying to know why weren't you and Francis speaking to one another? For no reason whatsoever. It was just that when you, when you're exhausted, I see what you mean. Exhausted as well. I mean, just get the hell away from me. Is what yeah, you're saying. Fran and yeah. I have never fallen out. Yeah, I mean, we've never fallen out for extended periods. He'll he'll tell you, and if he listens, if you're listening to this, if, if Francis is listening to this, he'll know exactly the point I'm talking about because we both still laugh about it. There was a point in Vietnam where he and Lawrence, I I had a bit of a meltdown. My bike <laughs> broke or something, and the two of them basically just, pardon my French, fucked off up a mountain. And and left me. Right. I was, and I think I think I just do- dropped my chain or something like that. So I ended up throwing my bike into a into a bush. <laughs> and I'll stomp around on the road. Got very very cross. Shook my fists and up in the air and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, got back on the bike and and kind of we lost one another for a few hours until eventually um, they came tearing past me. I I, I I managed to get past them somehow. They came tearing past me, slipstreaming a, a, a truck, and Fran came up there. He rode up next to me and um, was all sort of happy. And Joe was like, "Oh, where have you been?" And I'm just I bit his head off, and, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and he just sort of went, "Oh, okay," and then slowly just slipped back. <laughs> oh wow! Just left me alone for the rest of the day. And I and after a few hours, I said, "No, I'm really sorry." I was I was horrible, and I, it, it, it takes quite a lot. Those of the, the people that know me know that it takes quite a lot to make me very angry. Um, but I was really angry that day. Uh, but I think, I, other than that, no, I don't think there's anything uh, that Fran and I have ever really properly. We've never fallen out. He's my brother. Yeah, I mean, I can't even I can't even imagine honestly. But um, but obviously, you know, perception isn't always reality. So. Um, <laughs> But um, what, what, so what would you characterize as the hardest ride you've ever done? Was it Death Valley? No. Really? The hardest ride we ever did was um, in Mojave. Something they never tell, nobody tells you about Mojave is that it's not flat. And, <laughs> yeah. and the, you know, the, the, I think there was a day where we did 150 miles and it was about 2,000 meters of elevation. Bearing in mind, it's 45 degrees, loaded day, you know, loaded bikes. And we ended up in a in a basin called Calso in the middle of the Mojave Desert, which is sort of halfway between Barstow and Baker. Um, and it was incredibly hard. I mean, I, I've still got a video actually of um, I there there was a point where and this has never happened to me before or since on a bike where I had to stop, get off my bike, sit down, have a little cry, and get back on again. <laughs> <laughs> It was, you know, it was so hard. It, it just, I, and, you know, I've done things like Von Two Three Ways, and but that doesn't even compare. Um, it, it was, it was on a different, different level altogether. Bearing in mind, you know, the three of us were pretty fit. Um, you know, had 
you know, Lawrence certainly was was racing pro at that point in time, and we all agreed it was the hardest ride we've ever done. Yeah. That, and so when, whenever you hear, you will hear it in the videos, the Kelso reference, that's basically what we're talking about is that day where we ended up in this little basin which had a which had a water fountain that was blowing out hot water, so not even cool water. Um, and yeah, it was just it was just a really really hard ride. That's crazy. And for those listening, forty five degrees was Celsius. I might add, <laughs> it's a hundred no. over hundred degrees. Yeah, yeah, just brutal. Well, back to some bike fit stuff, just real quick. I'd like to touch on some of the inexpensive ways to approach this philosophy and somewhat of their importance. Uh, if we could shoes and insoles go mm. uh, approach them in what way? I think, I think the, the most important thing about shoes is that it doesn't have to be expensive. You know, a shoe, you know, you don't have to spend two, three, 400 pounds on shoes. Now, look, I, I prefer carbon sole shoes. I don't stop plastic sole shoes in my shop because a plastic sole shoe has to be thicker in order to retain the stiffness. Therefore, it, it, it sort of impinges the hips through the top of the stroke. The, but that's by the by. Not everybody can afford two, three hundred, four hundred dollars on shoes. The most important thing is that it fits. Right. And um, unfortunately, there is not a, an easy way of going about it. What you need to do, what my recommendation is seek out somebody who specializes in cycling shoes, somebody that measures your feet. Somebody that has uh, stocks more than one brand. If they do only stock one brand, make sure it's Lake. Um, someone that you know just understands feet, um, and and pr- probably someone who has a, a, an understanding of bike fitting. Um, there are there are some brands that typically work better than others. I mean, Lake is a big one, and I, and I don't I don't want this to come across as a as a Lake advertisement because it isn't. Um, but the we chose lake rather than the other way around mm. and the beauty of lake is that across we carry three models i think maybe four no we carry three models three core models in standard and wide fit and across across those three models you get six different fits of shoe right the last changes yeah yes six yeah. different lasts well six different fits because some of the lasts can be the same but the upper is a different material, so therefore the fit is different. Oh, I see. Right. Flexibility, that sort of thing. So, yeah. for example, a Lake CX218 and a CX238 have the same last, but the 218, the cheap shoe, has a single boa and a PU upper versus the latch has a double boa and a bovine upper. The 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 cheaper shoe has is more roomy. Mm. So, but it doesn't stretch and it doesn't give because it's PU. Um, so... Yeah, but the, the, the takeaway really ought to be for, for the listeners would should be someone that needs to measure your feet. You need to understand your feet. Um, if anybody sizes up to accommodate the width of the foot, walk straight out. Right. Um, you know, accommodate going up a size to accommodate the width of the foot is the first major no no. Yeah. I, I, um, so when I used to fit shoes, if, if one, for example, has a removable insole, what I would do just to prove them wrong, the customer that is is I would outline their foot on a sheet of paper and then I'd outline the insole and be like, do these look like they match to you? Yeah. And just say, look, like, I'm not trying to be a jerk here. It's just like, come on, like I'm trying to help you and you're like refusing my help effectively. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And to a certain extent, you can do the same with shoes. Like if you look at if you look at a shoe top down, you can tell quite obviously that, that it isn't going to fit that foot. Right. And um, so, so yeah. Um, I mean, insoles, without getting too techy, almost everybody, well, everybody, in my opinion, needs insoles or, or some sort of art sport build into their shoes. Um, they, um, in, and I can't take credit for this attitude. This is, this is Steve Hogg's um, opinion, but um, it, it's a proprioceptive mechanism, so it needs to feel invasive. Um, I personally prefer and use the late, yeah, the the G8 2620 modular footbed, um, which is a non-custom, semi-custom footbed. Uh, the reason for it is it is cheap, fast, and effective um, over and above uh, over and above a custom. Uh, now, the, the problem with a custom footbed is they are expensive. More importantly for me, they're time-consuming, and they're not always right. And if you mold a custom footbed and you do it wrong, you are either going to have to start again or more likely you're financially motivated to make it work. Mm. And because, you know, otherwise you've used a blank for no good reason and you've wasted it, right? So they're kind of, this is the thing with bike fitting is that there needs to be, you need to get the results, but you also need to have the commercial viability as well. Um, but I like the G8 because it's effective. It does the job. does what it needs to, be, needed to do. I mean, I've ridden across deserts, mountain ranges, entire continents using this footbed. I think any foot issues. Right. So, um, so yeah, I, I think it's more than sufficient. And like I say, it's pretty cost-effective and it's easy to administer. I think this is the other thing. You know, from a, particularly, so the vast majority of the shoes that we sell, we sell in a bike fit um, process. Right. Or a bike environment. And if I'm spending 45 minutes to mold a pair of footbeds, custom footbeds, I haven't got that time. Right. I haven't, I haven't got time to custom mold a pair of footbeds. Um, you know, whereas a, a G8 takes me five minutes, not even that, it takes 30 seconds to administer. Right. It means that I can spend more time looking at the bigger picture than spending, you know, spending obsessing, focusing an hour of my time just on one element of the fit. I think the thing with bike fitting is. It, Obviously, it depends on the individual, but um, when somebody comes in for a fit, um, there's a lot to do. Like, is in the, the fit is usually so wrong and so far out that you've got to change all of the parameters, and you've only got three hours to do it in. And this is the only guaranteed time you've got. People right. say, "Oh, yeah, you know, you keep, get tell the customer to come back for a follow up," but they don't. Though. They, they, because they go out with it feeling 60% better. You've solved most of their problems. They think, oh, this feels amazing. They don't know what 100% feels like because you don't know what you don't know. Right. So uh, this is it. I, I, I need to do as much as possible within the time allocated and the, within the time that I have. And that's that's the reason for the GA. Yeah. It allows us to customize it. 90% of them need to be customized anyway with some form of wedging, be it internal, external. Um and, and only with that. And, uh, but again, it's only as good as how well it's administered. You can't, I mean, we sell a few of them online. You can't just expect to buy the footbed, put it in your shoes and expect good results. Because what right. if the shoe's wrong? The footbed is only good as, as good as the shoe that it's in. And if the right. shoe doesn't fit you or the foot shoe doesn't offer sufficient support, it's not going to fit. It's not going to work. Right. You know, we find certainly with some brands of shoe, I won't mention their names because I don't want to be sued. Um, the footbed doesn't feel right in the shoe. 
And when you change the shoe, the footwear feels right all of a sudden. And these are shoes that have very strong, these are two particular brands that have very strong correlations with foot pain, knee pain, saddle issues. The three are intrinsically linked. And, you know, it's because they might be non-neutral or because the arch, support's too, arch support is in the wrong place or the feet location is too far forward. All of these things influence how an arch support or an orthotic feels. Sure. Well, another cost-effective thing I, that you do, which and by cost-effective, I mean it's free, <laughs> is rotating the hoods on, on a road bike. Yeah. Um, that's something I never would have thought of, frankly. I mean, just as, as a fitment type of application. Are you talking about with, with regards to reach, reducing yeah, reach? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. It's something that it, it's a really easy fix, and you probably need video to to kind of. Uh, there's a video on YouTube, I think, somewhere about it um, that tells you that tells you how to do it. Um, right. I can't remember. I can't remember the video's name. Francis K. Something. Like right, that. right. <laughs> go go and watch that video. But but no, there, there, there are there are quite a lot of tips on those videos about how to set up your handlebars. But but yes, ro ro rotating the handlebar down, bringing the control up to offset the reach, the distance between the ball and where the control's located. Yeah, absolutely, is a great way of reducing reach without changing anything. And I do that in nylon almost every fit. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, again, it was something I'd never would have thought of, but is 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 cheap by way of free. So it's pretty sweet. Um, all right. So we've mentioned watches a couple times. Uh, you and I are both nuts on them. Um, you tend to gravitate to military purpose built tool watches, it seems. I believe I've seen you wear a Speedmaster. I think a Seiko. You've got a Panerai on today. I, do you own or have you owned an IWC or am I making this up? No, I have a vintage um, Hamilton, uh, which has a value 7750 movement, which is the same as what IWC used in their, in their big pilot. I actually, I, I keep looking at those IWCs and just kind of going, nah. Interesting. Because, well, because it's basically the same as what I have. It's three times the price. And actually, I don't like it as much. Oh, so I'd be kind of having a, a watch with essentially the same movement because the value seventy seven fifty is a, if you're into watches, it, you know people know that chronograph movement. Um, right, great movement. It's it's a real workhorse. It's that I mean that's that's quite often my my uh, everyday watch, um, and because it tells the day, it tells the date. I, I quite like that, and, and and actually when when my first child's born, it's probably the watch I'm going to have on my wrist because I'm going to know what bloody day and date is. Makes sense, right? But uh, the, uh, us horologists, as we like to call ourselves, um, we don't like date windows on our watches. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't really know why. I, I think it, 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 it. Well, it it disrupts the 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 design and and yeah. the um, the symmetry. More importantly, yeah. But I, I'm not really that attentive about things like that. I just quite like to know what bloody date is sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I I have. I've had two Speedmasters. I, I, I have just, I, I got rid of the first one. I had a, a first Omega in space and I, I really didn't get on with it because I couldn't read it. As, as you know, I've, I've grown up with, with military watches. I have a, um, a few Hamiltons, uh, which were, you know, credited with being some of the first military watches. And um, the ability to snap and look at a watch and look at the time and be able to understand the time I've always, I've gotten used to. The FOIS had polished hands, polished alpha hands. And I found myself doing this all the time. And I couldn't read the damn thing. 
And I, I regret selling it actually because they've tripled in price <laughs> since I, uh, sorry, they've, they've definitely doubled, they've almost tripled in price um, on, on the brain, on the, um, on the secondhand market since I got rid of mine, um, which is a real pisser. But I now have a, um, a master chronometer, um, the new, the new 3861 um, movement, which, oh, nice. which is great. So really great, great watch. Um, I actually have a first Omega in space and I've, I've actually been, I've been thinking about selling it actually. You'll get good money for it now. Well, yeah, I just can't, I can't decide though. Like, should I, should I not? I, I, I don't, I, it's not enticed by money more than do I really need it to say that I own a, a Speedmaster? you know, like, cause there's so many folks out there that just say like, well, every collector needs to own a Speedmaster, And I'm just like, but do I, do I? <laughs> I, I like cars. I like military watches. Yeah. I, I like going fast. I always kind of, I, 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 I like the, um, I like the, the romance behind the Speedmaster. Um, there is, I mean, I, what I really want, but can't, haven't quite managed to get around to a foot. Well, I can afford it. It's just can't really get around, get my head around spending 10 grand on a Speedmaster is a 321. Um, you know, that, that's what I would really like the, the, the modern updated one. Cause it's a slightly smaller case. doesn't have the, um, the pusher protectors, um, but you know, it's, it's still, it's still 15,000 pound Omega and, you know, you're then kind of getting into Patek territory and, uh, Vacheron territory. So yeah, fair enough. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it kind of, it kind of looks the same. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, watches is something that again, I've inherited from my father. I have my father to thank for it. Um, uh, watches and fast cars. Um, what does he wear? <sighs> Uh, he's got three Pateks, a couple oh. of Ashes, several Rolexes, a um, couple of Hamiltons, had a Panerai. I bought this because I always remember my father having, uh, I think it was a luminal base, I think he had, mm. um, way back, this is years ago, when when they first stopped, when when old Slice Stallone started wearing them after daylight, remember like when, when, they, when they first came out, he wore one, I always loved it, um, well, my dad had one, one uh, wore one and I always loved it so I, uh, I I bought this last year year before last um but uh yeah no, whilst, whilst talking about that well it's interesting because I was going to ask you if you had any grail watches but it sounds like you're in line to to inherit quite a few good ones <laughs> I, I hope so but I, I I never I never bank on such things it's sure sure <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's a there's a there's a Vacheron Constantin uh, historique that I've got my eye on at the moment. Um, cool. that's, a, that's a really lovely piece. Uh, it's a 39 millimeter chronograph. I don't know why, but I've developed this thing for chronographs. As somebody who, uh, you know, as a diving instructor, I should, by all accounts, have a diver. I've only got one diver in my in my um, uh, list. I've, I've also got a reverso, JLC reverso. Oh, beautiful. Um, and uh, is the SKS, SKX 007. And, you know, that's that's a great little watch. I, I have dived with it, and I've, I've been sort of toying with the idea of getting a diver. Um, I have this thing about not owning Rolexes anymore. Oh. And I, I, I don't really know what it is, because they, they're amazing watches. And I, I, I am on the list for a Submariner 41 um, at the moment with a date. But... Um, yeah, I, I kind of feel like I'd look like a bit of a prat getting onto a dive boat with a Submariner on. I feel like it's a bit too expensive. These days, it's too expensive to, to be to be a true diver's watch, in my opinion. Interesting. Hot take. Now, would you would you want to be clanging around with some, you know, 
with dive tanks and what have you with a with a $9,000 watch? Well, I mean, some would argue that's what it's built for. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree. Yeah, and, and getting, I mean, you want to talk about natural patina. If you like clank it on your, your tank, like, I mean, that's, that's natural patina and it's its own habitat. The, the, most of the people that would argue that's what it's designed for also probably aren't divers. But the fact that, you know, the watch can go to the moon doesn't mean that you need to do it. Well, I, I was going to say, because like, you know, would you dive in a sub regardless of price? Is it even the best dive watch anymore? Like I, I think you know. There's other like elect. What, what I don't. I'm not a diver, so aren't they all like, like digital and yeah, yeah. yeah they're yeah. all they're all decompression computers now. So you don't. I mean, but there there is something there, there is something nice about having a time lapse bezel uh, on a dive watch. It, it, it's it's an old school uh, ideal. Um, but to be honest, it, it, my father was ex-military navy diver, and uh, I talk about my father a lot, don't I? Um, but you know, has has always sort of taught me and instilled in me that you know that it's always good to have contingency. Mm-hmm. So if all else fails, right, still got your watch. Yeah, you know, this is a dive watch. <laughs> it's got better. It's got better water resistance than the Submariner as well. Right. Wow. Um, that's so funny. So, well, you mentioned you're going to be a father soon. Congrats, by the way. It is so. So there's not necessarily a watch purchase looming. No, no. Okay. I, I bought the Speedmaster recently. Okay. For for it, I, we don't know if it's a boy. <laughs> uh, and you know, I, I figure if it's a boy, um, then I will you know donate this Speedmaster to them. Uh, that was the reason for it. It, it, it was it's 2021, so um, you know the, the the watch will be as old as they are. Um, and if it's a girl, then we'll give her the diamonds i bought so right right um so so yeah that's that's cool you mentioned cars a couple times what's what's the daily driver the daily driver is a three series coupe at the moment oh is uh old and has had a hard life (laughs) but but funnily enough i i learned to drive very late i actually learned my father was a petrol head i grew up being driven around in aston martins and ferraris and i have always loved cars always been interested in cars only learned to drive out three years ago what yeah yeah so i have i have a manual um three series coupe so my first my first car was a 250 horsepower rear wheel drive manual car um and it, it's constantly wearing out its rear tires for some reason. I don't really know why. Uh, you know, the traction control never seems to go on. Or, right. But, but yeah. Um, so that that's up for replacement next year, probably. Um, I, I have a few ideas, but do you uh, do you have a favorite car that your dad has owned? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, and there's a there's a great story behind it. If we've got the time. Um, I, I'm I'm wide I'm wide open by the way, so I'm worried about your time. 20, 20 minutes, half an hour. Oh, wait, plenty of time. It was uh, an Aston Martin, nineteen fifty four Aston Martin DB two four, um, which he bought for about twenty five thirty thousand uh, pounds. This is quite a while ago now. This is about ten or fifteen years ago, and the the car at the time back in the day they they had problems with. They had problems with the engines of some some description. Anyway, the engine block on this particular car had been replaced. So when it came, went in for its first service after we'd acquired it, the 
the engineer or mechanic working on it said the, the engine block number doesn't match the chassis serial number. And he did some research and it turned out that the block in this car was from DB3 RS, which at the time was a racing car. Right. Just so happens that that particular engine block, was it Jackie Stewart? Oh, wow. Drove it in, in Le Mans. Um, oh that God. car last sold for 400,000 pounds, I think. Your dad sold it for four hundred thousand pounds. No, no, no. He sold it for five, he sold it for a, a, a lot more than, than he paid for it. But it most recently sold for four hundred thousand. Okay. Um, but it was, it was a beautiful car. It had a modified uh, front grille. I don't know where you know what a DB two four looks like, but it doesn't have that traditional. It doesn't have a grille like a DB five or a DB four. It has a, a much older looking, very vertical grille. So that came off and it had a much more modern, looked a bit like a, a DB3 Zagato. Sure. So beautiful, beautiful car. Um, and yeah, it was a very, very special car. We had one of the first vanquishes off the off the line at Newport Pagnall. Beautiful car. 456 GTA. Um, he had an auto though. And I, I, I then they got to have an auto. <laughs> <laughs> So what's your grail car then? Like, is there anything on your list in the future, maybe? My grail car I'll never own. Um, it, it'd either be a DB4 uh, or Ferrari 250 GT. Oh, of course, yeah. But but I think that's that's a lot of people's grail cars. Next car will probably be a Jaguar XK. Yeah. Because they're just, you know, good value for money, five liter V8. Um, okay, so modern. You're not you're not talking old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Modern, modern, modern XK. Um, and you can pick those up for, for pretty good money at the moment for now. But I think that's going to be a future classic. You know, I, I sort of I, I had a big falling out about an Alfa Romeo Giulia not long ago. Oh. I, I, I can't I can't quite bring myself to get a quadrifolio because it's just it's, it's a lot of money for a saloon car that the, the arse is going to fall out of it. It's not going to be worth anything in two years' time. Do you know what I mean? Right. Whereas an XA will be, right. potentially. Right. Um, I guess that's the way I see it. But ultimately something that's rear wheel drive and makes a lot of noise yeah but again you know it's it, it could say anything everyone's got their own opinions on cars haven't they a lot of people like porsches i mean i i like i love porsches but i would prefer an older one if i was going to have one i think the problem with porsches for me is that there are so many around here hmm. um they're mostly KNs and wanker wankers, you know, the big four by fours. Um, sorry, I hope you don't have one of those. Um, <laughs> but, but if you like cars, if you like cars, you don't have a four by four. Um, or maybe you do, but it's the second car. Um, but yeah, there's just a lot of 911s out there. They, you know, they made more 911s than they did four focuses. I haven't heard that statistic. That's funny. Yeah. Um, well, certainly one year they did. Uh, so, so yeah, but you know, again, not, not, you can't knock a 911, it's the best, best sports cars in the world, isn't it? Right, right. Well, you, you're based in Richmond and I have to ask about Ted Lasso, uh, cause you know, they're obviously over there. Have you watched it? No. Oh, you've, oh, oh, never. Okay. never mind then. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's like literally like one of the, like most watched television shows on Apple TV plus right now. Oh, right. And they literally, yeah, so they started filming. No, I'm dead serious. This is hilarious. I might just leave this in because you've never heard of it. 
Right, we're watching that. I got Apple Plus. Uh, Apple Dude, Plus. oh my God, man. Yeah, th- I just, <laughs> well, it just shows also how busy you are because like this show has been like, I mean, it's won Emmy Awards. It's won all this stuff. Um, I'm going to send this to because uh, we'll, we'll, it'll, it'll remind me to watch it. I've only found one person that doesn't like it, but everybody else is, it's kind of a feel good show, but it, it like give it, give it like two to three episodes because like the first one, you're just like, okay, what the hell's going on? And then, but it's, it's great. I mean, it, it makes you feel good, man. It's cool. Well, well, we've been, um, we've been looking for a new show to to watch. So maybe that'll be it. Bingo. And, and they, so it revolves around the football club of Richmond as well. So right, yeah, it's, it's all, it's all there. That's so funny. God. Um, what, uh, what would you consider to be your favorite band? It seems like you like classic rock when you're in the shop. The, the the classic rock thing is actually a uh, um, a business mechanism. Mm. When someone walks through the door and uh, they hear "Dark Side of the Moon" by Pink Floyd, and they go, "I've heard this in years," and it, it transports them back. And as they're going through this ethereal transportation back to their you know early twenties their purse strings are loosening at the same time. So it means that I can just extract a little bit more. It's, you know what, it's all part of the experience. But I, you know, I, I, I do love that kind of music. I was brought up on a staple of Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd. Um, but, you know, it's not just limited to that. You know, Sam Cooke, Roy Orbison, um, Michael Jackson, Jackson 5. Like, I, I, I got a pretty eclectic taste in music. Right. But favorite band, God, that's hard. I'm yeah. going to see Greta Van Fleet um, in June, though. Okay, that'll be good. You heard of, you, you listen to them much? No. If you like Led Zeppelin, you need to listen to this band. Okay. Uh, I mean, and if you have if you haven't heard of them, you you really need to look them up. Right. They're they're absolutely incredible. So, but my favorite modern band, definitely what they're they're up there. Uh, okay. St. Paul and the Broken Bones as well. Um, it's another um, another band from your homeland, but yeah, I I listen to loads of stuff, uh, and to be honest, just put on what I'm feeling at that point in time. My 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 um, tastes go from like classic rock all the way up to like Slipknot or uh, you, know, uh, you know classical stuff or whatever. So I, I listen to almost anything. Have you ever heard of the band called the Mars Volta? No. Okay, they're like Led Zeppelin on speed and acid all at the same time. Yeah, so if it yeah, Mars so Volta. yeah, Mars is in like the planet, and then Volta V O L T A. I'll look them up. Thank you, the Mars Volta. Go. Yeah, they'll 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 you'll either your ears will either be bleeding or uh, you'll just be like bouncing around with a big smile on your face. <laughs> That's what I do with Greta. Well, I'm telling you right now, these guys are fucking animals. <laughs> and their, their drummer is incredible. James, wrapping up, man. Thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate you uh, taking part in the show. Nice to meet you. I'm, I'm trying to make it over. I don't know if you're aware, but I had Yanto Barker on the show. Like right, okay. Last year, maybe? Maybe the beginning of this year? One of these days, I'd like to get over there and you know, borrow a bike from somebody and, and meet up with all you guys and go for a road ride. That'd be fun. I got, I got a whole, I got a shed full of them. I got a shop full of them. Um, but... And likewise, man, if you ever want to come back to San Diego, like I have a guest room, come crash, 
we'll do some riding. It'd be a blast. Well, yeah, if you make it over here, be sure to give me a shout and we'll, uh, we'll get you involved. Yeah, for sure. Have a great day. Thanks, James. Appreciate you. Thanks, man. Bye. Thanks. Thanks so much to James once again for taking the time. Uh, had a blast with the conversation. I absolutely would love to get out on a ride at some point. As always, major thanks goes to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as to Clear Audio for the noise-canceling headphones. Stay tuned for the last episode of Season 5 of the Standard H Podcast hitting you in two weeks' time. There might be a little Easter egg in there, too, with something that uh, maybe is a little less expected. Hope you guys have a wonderful holiday, and I will catch you soon. Bye, everyone.